All right, let's dive back in. We were in a series that we started last week, and uh, I called it the perfect series, not because I think uh, I'm perfect or it's perfect, um, but we're looking at what the Bible talks about when it uses this word perfect. I believe a lot of our frustration with people, uh, frustration with circumstances, is due to unmet expectations. A lot of problems that people have in marriage come from expecting one thing, and when their spouse doesn't meet the expectation that they have, uh, that's where problems come from. And when I do premarital counseling, I try to help couples have realistic expectations for their marriage. And I believe the Scripture gives us realistic expectations that we could have of our circumstances, of ourselves, or the people around us. And sometimes when we allow ourselves to have unbiblical expectations, even of ourselves, we get ourselves into trouble. And so when we read this word perfect, like in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, where Jesus says, be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect, what is he talking about? Is Jesus expecting us to actually meet um, the, the, the perfection of who God is? Are we supposed to, in everything, always say the right word? Are we supposed to always do the right thing? Are we, are we just literally supposed to be, as we define perfect in our culture, is that what Jesus is talking about? Should we expect perfection out of ourselves? Should we beat ourselves up when we make a mistake? Should we put on sackcloth and ashes? Should we, you know, beat ourselves with something so that we, you know, uh, really feel the weight of our sin? What is the Bible talking about when it talks about perfection? Last week we looked at the words purity and holiness. What do those words mean? And what's the purpose of our purity? What's the purpose of holiness? We know that our purity and our holiness actually comes from Jesus. I'm not holy and I'm not pure because of how I live my life. I'm holy and pure because of the confidence I put in Jesus Christ. And as a result of putting confidence in Him, now my behaviors and actions should start to change so they line up more and more with who He is, with His purity, with His holiness. But this isn't a competition. I'm not up against other people. It's not like I have bragging rights. I don't want to be like the Pharisee that prayed, well, thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy over there. I mean, I'm doing better than him at least. You know, because here's the thing. When I look at that guy over there, I'm like, I'm measuring up how I'm better than him in certain areas. But I guarantee you, there are areas of that guy's life that are better than mine. I'm just not fixated on those. I mean, those aren't as important as the ones I'm fixated on. And so this journey to perfection, this journey to holiness, this journey to maturity is what we've been talking about as uh, we started that series last week. And I gave you two words last week. There's the Greek word tele teleo, which is the root word for the where we get our word perfect in our translations. And that word just means end or finish. End or finish. The word teleos is the word that most often gets translated perfect or mature or complete or grown up or without defect. And that's that word perfect that appears in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. But that's not a destination, it's a journey. The Apostle Paul uses it in Philippians chapter 3. Look at, see if you can find it here. Not that I've already attained this, not that I've already been perfected, there it is, but I strive to lay hold of that 
for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. I'm striving every day to be more and more like this. But then later on, look at what he says here in verse 15. Sometimes it gets confusing. Therefore, let those of us who are perfect. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He just said, we're not yet perfect. But now he's saying, let those of us who are perfect. What is it? I mean, are you perfect or are you not perfect? Yes. Yes. Because in Jesus, we are perfect. And yet, our point of views don't always match up. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, you know, at some point, if you start disagreeing, don't worry. So those of us who are perfect don't mean literally perfect, but it means those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Those of us who have the perfection of Christ on our lives. We have disagreements. What? How could we have disagreements if we're all perfect? God will make that clear to us as we continue on what he just described a few verses earlier, that journey toward perfection. Does that, I mean, that's as clear as mud, right? I mean, how can you be perfect and be being made perfect all at the same time? So when we go back to Matthew 5.48, when Jesus is saying, be perfect like my Father's perfect, he's talking about our relationships. He's talking about how we should love our enemies, how we should do good to those who hate us, how we should pray for those who persecute us. Because, you know, it, it's easy for me as a human being to, be, to do good things for those who are good people, who I judge as good people, who are doing things that are good to me, who are actually being kind to me. It's not hard for me to be good back to those people. But do good to those who hate me? That is not natural. But that's the perfect love of the Father. That's what He did for us. Because at one point, all of us were His enemies. And yet, he demonstrated his love by giving himself for us. And so he calls us into that level of perfect love. Start living like that. You've already received it. Now, live it out. Does that mean you're not going to make mistakes? No, you're going to make mistakes. But we have to be open-armed, if you will, towards people. We have to have an inclusive type of love. And when I say that word inclusive, I'm not talking about like honoring everybody's beliefs and saying that they're valid. I'm talking about the posture we take towards people. Because we can have a posture towards someone. We can act in love towards them. We can actually show tolerance, biblical tolerance, for people that disagree with us without saying your beliefs are correct. Their beliefs might be wrong. I might think their beliefs are wrong. But I can actually still be inclusive in my posture towards them. And that's what Jesus is talking about. So today, I want to look at the perfect book. The perfect book. And I want to talk about some of the expectations that we have at a, as on the Bible. And this is going to be a series that we're actually going to do in the month of January. So I'm going to kind of whet our appetite a little bit for where we're going. Um, I'm just going to give a little bit of it today. And in the month of January, later in the year 2023, so probably sometime in February, as I said last week, I want to start going through the book of Matthew together. I want us to look at the life of Jesus and how that applies to our lives. Um, but in order to do that, I want to use a book that's called How Not to Read the Bible. How Not to Read the Bible. It's a book that's written by Dan Kimball. And in it, uh, he tries to help us understand this book that we call the Bible and what it's like. And today, I'm going to give you four points to talk about how we should not read the Bible 
or how we should read the Bible, and to try to keep them in mind as we go through the next few weeks or the next few months until we come to this series and really dive into them a little bit more. Because to understand the, the words of Jesus, to understand the gospel of Matthew, if you will, there are some principles that I think we have to, to understand about this book that we call the Bible. I don't know if you realize this, but this book did not like drift down out of the heavens, okay? We, human beings, with the help of the Holy Spirit, put this book together, okay? The men and the women who wrote this book, okay, were inspired by God. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we believe that this book is God-breathed. We believe it's authoritative. We believe that it holds the, how we ought to live out our lives, it teaches us in every generation of all time how to live. But the book wasn't given to us in this form. There's a, two different sections of the Bible called the Old Testament and the New Testament. I've started not referring to it as old and new, but as first and second. First and second. Because sometimes when we think of old, we think of, you know, outdated we think of, you know, no longer useful. But can I tell you, the, the First Testament, what we call the Old Testament, is still very useful for us today. In fact, we cannot understand who Jesus is. I'm going to show you from Scripture. We can't even understand who Jesus is apart from the Old Testament. And so if we don't understand it, we won't know how to apply it to our lives. Then we come to what we call the New Testament. And somewhere in, in about the... the second century, we started to put the Bible together in what we call the canon or what we have in the New Testament. And we had all these different letters. There are some letters, the, the, the letter to, from the Apostle Thomas, that didn't make the cut. The book of Revelation actually barely made the cut. Some of the early church fathers didn't want to include that in the canon of Scripture. They didn't know if it was like authoritative or not. And so it's there. We believe it's authoritative based on our best knowledge. But how do we know for sure? Like, how do we know that they picked all the right letters and the ones that they didn't pick shouldn't have been in here? Martin Luther didn't think the book of James should be included here. Yeah. In fact, Martin Luther, he was kind of a, a fiery guy. Um, if, if you know, he you know, nailed his 95 theses on the, the church door there at uh, wherever. <laughs> and so, but Martin Luther didn't, he wanted to burn down all the Jewish synagogues and all the Jewish scrolls, and he wanted to like eliminate all of it because he felt like it was actually a hindrance to the gospel. I'm glad we didn't listen to Martin Luther because that's not a hindrance to the gospel. It helps us to understand the gospel. And how many of you like the book of James? Yeah, yeah well, I don't know. It kind of points out all this stuff about my tongue and things I don't like. So maybe, maybe we could do without that. Now, you understand what we're talking about. So the book that we have in this format, you know, we've been piecing together throughout history. In 1947, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we actually found some of the earliest manuscripts to some of the older ones that we had. And all of it validated what we already had. We didn't have a lot of early manuscripts back then. Before 1947, we were just hoping that some of the manuscripts that were passed on in maybe the 2nd and 3rd century were accurate. Well, guess what we found? We found they were totally accurate, that they were passed on just as they were written. So we believe this book is without error. We believe it can be totally trusted. It's the authoritative and inspired word of God. 
Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 9 and 10, because in some ways, some people today will call this perfect book, and they will go to this passage of Scripture. And so I want to make sure we start here, because the Apostle Paul is talking about the, the ways that the Spirit works in our lives, the manifestations of the Spirit, if you will, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 9, he says, Now we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And so what some people believe is, what Paul has just said, is that tongues are going to cease and prophecy is going to cease in when this perfect comes. And some people refer to the Bible as that perfect. The Bible is the perfect book because we, we now have it in its complete canon form. And in the context of 1 Corinthians 13, I think that's a stretch. Because if you keep reading the verses that Paul goes on to talk about, uh, this perfect, he says that one day, it, when the perfect comes, we're going to be fully known and we're going to know fully. Now, I am grateful for this book. And even though this is a perfect book, we as imperfect people have mishandled this book over the years. So we don't perfectly interpret it all the time. We've changed some of our interpretations over the years because we've, we've recognized we've gotten some things wrong. And so we've grown. So if this book is perfect, is the perfect that he's referring to, I think we would know more fully than we do right now. I also think because he says now we see in part, but then we will see face to face. I don't know about you, but I still believe there's a day coming where I'm going to look at Jesus face to face. Grateful for the Holy Spirit, grateful for the Bible, grateful for all the work that God is doing in my life. But for me, when I read 1 Corinthians 13, I can't take that word perfect, which is the same teleos that we've been talking about, and think that what Paul is talking about is this book. Because in the context of 1 Corinthians 13 and all that the apostle says, yeah, I just don't think so. Now, when Jesus comes and we're in his presence physically, are we going to need tongues? No. Are we going to need prophecy? No. Are we going to need healing? No. We're not going to need any of the manifestations of the Spirit that happen right now. But you know what we are going to still have? Faith, hope, and love. Those things are eternal. So what Paul is trying to emphasize is the gifts of the Spirit, the manifestations of the Spirit are important for us today. One day they're going to pass away. So what's most important is faith, hope, and love. So if you're operating in the manifestations of the Spirit outside of faith, hope, and love, you are missing it. Because those are eternal things. And these are temporary. And so that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. So, yes, this is a perfect book. But sometimes I think our interpretation of it needs to get corrected. And that's what Dan Campbell in his book is trying to help us to do, to make sure that we are accurately handling this book. So the first thing he says, number one, the Bible is a library, not a book. The Bible is a library, not a book. The word Bible actually comes from the Greek word biblia, which means books. It's plural. This is not a book. This is a collection of books. All of those books in two parts, the 
Old Covenant, the New Covenant, the first or the second. The Old Testament is the Hebrew Scripture. So when Jesus walked the earth and he had a Bible or he had a Scripture, what Jesus would have, well, he wouldn't have actually had one because they only had certain scrolls and they were in the synagogue, but what he would have referred to was what we refer to as the Old Testament. Now the Hebrews put it in a different order. We don't have time to talk about that one today, but we have them in a different order than they would have had them. They would have had the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, what we refer to as the law, but would actually be the teaching or instruction. So it's not necessarily just the law. It's called the Torah. Then the prophets. The prophets would have started in the book of Joshua and would have included all of the books of history, what we call history. They would have been prophetic books. Then the books of the prophets. And then there would be the writings. So Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, the books of uh, Jeremiah, or not Jeremiah, the books of Lamentations, not Lamentations, the books of Nehemiah, excuse me, and Ezra would have been included in the writings. The book of Daniel would have been a writing. Okay, so that wouldn't have been a prophetic book for the Bible that Jesus would have referred to or had. So then the Apostle Paul in 2 or Timothy chapter 3 says, All Scripture is inspired by God, and it is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong, and it teaches us what to do, to do what is right. When Paul wrote that word, all Scripture, the only Scripture that existed was the Old Testament. Because he's writing the book of 2 Timothy. Now, do I think that the New Testament is, fits this? Yes. I think the New Testament is important. I think it's God-inspired. It's useful to teach us just like that. But it shows you the importance of making sure we understand the Old Testament so that we correctly understand the New. The Bible itself was written over a period of 1,500 years by about 40 different offers. It was started about 1,400 B.C. when Moses would have written the first five books of the Bible, what we refer to as the Torah or the law. And it would have ended around 100 A.D., somewhere maybe in that time period, depending on how you date some of the later letter letters. So a span of 1,500 years, this collection of books, written 3,400 years ago, that's a long time. To put that in perspective, remember, America is about 250 years old. 250 years old. 3,400 years ago. So when we read something from early American literature, sometimes we have to recognize that some of the words they're using don't mean the same thing to us in modern America, 2020, that they did back in 1776, right? Imagine... 3,400 years. And so when we start looking at words like perfect, and we just start thinking, as a 2022 American, what does the word perfect mean? We might not fully understand what the Bible is talking about. So we've got to recognize this is a collection of books that has been gathered over a period of years that, again, inspired by God, totally authoritative, but what do we do with it? Here's number two. The Bible is written for us, but not to us. The Bible is written for us, but not to us. What do we mean by that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Dr. John Walton says this. We believe the Bible was written for us. That is, it's for everyone of all times and, it, and all places because it's God's word. But it wasn't written to us. It wasn't written in our language. It wasn't written with our culture in mind 
or our culture in view. Dan Kimball in his book goes on to explain this a little bit further. He says this, John is explaining that the Bible is 100% inspired by God. And we can have confidence that every word in the original documents of the Bible is exactly what God wanted it to say. We believe in God's full inspiration and the total trustworthiness of the Bible. The books in the library of the Bible are for all people at all times and all places to read and gain wisdom from. So no matter what else I say today, please interpret it through that lens. Do not forget, do not misunderstand anything else, but make sure you're hearing it through that lens. Every page of the Bible, every single word of the Bible has important insight and instruction for us today. Maybe not equal instruction, but it has instruction for us today. Okay? When you take the Bible as a whole, the collection of books, it tells us a story of what God has been doing on the earth. It tells us who God is and all that He's done. It tells us about His plan of salvation. It tells us our purpose. It tells us our origin. It gives us guidance for life. It gives us a vision of what is ahead. Uh, is ahead. And it most of all tells us who Jesus is. Keep in mind, the Bible was written for us, but not to us. Okay, number three. Never read a Bible verse. Never read a Bible verse. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean don't ever read a Bible verse. He means don't ever read it alone. Too many people take a specific Bible verse and just stop. Go further. Before you take that Bible verse and apply it to your life, make sure you look at the paragraph that verse is in. Make sure you look at the chapter of the Bible that verse is in. And keep in mind that chapters and verses were added later to help us be able to understand and maybe properly connect with the Scripture. They were not written by the original authors. Okay? So sometimes they actually hinder or they actually break up a thought. And you'll find some scholars that think, no, 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 this chapter should have ended over here on this verse and this chapter. There's disagreement. But if we stay on the journey, don't worry. God will make it clear to us. So look at the book of the Bible that that chapter is in and look at the, where the, that book of the Bible actually fits in the entire storyline of the Bible. The danger that we have in our world today is we just start pulling out verses and we, we misapply them, one, because we think that those words mean the same thing in 2022 that they meant when the Bible was written. And we don't step back from it and remember, hey, that's maybe not what that meant. What does it mean? I know some of you are already processing the slippery slope. Don't worry, we're going to get there. Relax. Stay with me. But the King James Version of the Bible, when I grew up, the King James Bible, that was the Holy Bible. All the other translations were off. Okay. Let's look at Isaiah 34.7 from the, the King James Bible, okay? Isaiah 34, 7. And the unicorns shall come down with them. I'm not making that up. Look it up. King James Bible. And the bullocks with the bulls. And their land shall be soaked with blood. And their dust made fat with fatness. Lest you think that that's unique. Numbers chapter 23, 22. God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. What? There's uni- Some of you didn't even know. You actually find five references to unicorns in the King James Bible. Yeah. But I promise you, the word unicorn today, 
where we think of a flying mythical horse with a horn on its head is not what was intended by this translation. Okay? Was it talking about an animal, probably a wild ox versus a domesticated ox or ox-like animal with a single horn on its head? Think rhinoceros, if you will. Big, okay, that's a lot different when we're talking strength than a unicorn, right? But if we take a verse of the Bible or we don't put it in the context or we don't remember that it's not written to us, we may start walking around. And you will actually find people that put memes on, on the internet today that say Christians don't know their Bible. If they knew their Bible, they knew it would be a fairy tale because the Bible believes in unicorns. What would you say if someone walked up to you and said, right there, five times. Some of you, that's the first time you ever heard that the word unicorn appeared in the Bible. Some of you already knew it. But it's important for us to know the Scripture, to know the culture, to know the context, to know the words and the meaning that they had at that time. So never read a Bible verse by itself. Number four, all of the Bible points to Jesus. All of the Bible points to Jesus. All of it. Any interpretation of the Bible that is inconsistent with the life of Jesus is wrong. Period. Because it all points to him. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He came to show us what God always intended through the Torah. In Luke 24, verse 27, beginning with Moses, the Torah, and all the prophets... For Joshua, all the way through the last, he interpreted to them the things that were written about himself in all of the scriptures. Now we're thrown in the writings. Jesus is telling those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he's helping them to understand the Bible from that viewpoint. This was the Bible at that time. And so as we read the scripture, we should keep these four principles in mind as we, we talk about it, as we study it, as we read it. And we're going to dive into it even deeper in the month of January. And some of you are like, whoa, he's, a, he's done early today. We're not done yet. Uh, we're going to talk about creation a little bit. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Because remember, we're taught creation from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And we have to keep in mind the Bible was written for us, but not to us. Did you know that there are seven main views of how to interpret Genesis chapters 1 and 2 right now among Christians who believe that this book is the inspired word of God and totally authoritative. Some people believe that when Genesis says a day, it actually means a 24-hour time period. However, the Hebrew word is so ambiguous, it could mean a 24-hour time period, but it doesn't have to mean a 24-hour time period. And when, when it talks about creating the heavens and the earth, More than likely, that word isn't heavens, it's just sky. Sky, land. It's a simplistic approach to the creation story because who is it written to? Well, it's written to the people in the desert. Moses is writing to the people of Israel to help them understand God is their creator. God has created them in his image. God is faithful. And so you can interpret it as a literal 24-hour time period and think the earth is 6,000 years old. Or you can interpret it differently according to keeping this book authoritative. Now, some people think, oh, this is terrible. Pastor Tom, you're in heresy. I know, I'm just like Galileo. Galileo said, the Bible teaches us 
how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. Galileo lived 1546. He was born. 1642, he died. He, was, he lived in Italy. He was an astronomer, a physicist, an engineer. Sometimes we call him the father of modern science because he helped us with the scientific method. And during this time period, the church believed the Bible was to be revered, that its teachings were, were authoritative, and that its interpretation was sound. And they also believed that the earth was stationary and that the sun orbited the earth. They did. And each day, the sun appeared on the horizon, and it rose up and it moved across the sky, and then it disappeared over the other horizon. And it looked to, to them like the sun was moving and the earth was stationary. And this is what they thought the scriptures taught. Look at Ecclesiastes 1.5. The sun rises and the sun sets. It hurries back to where it rises. There's, that's truth. Praise the Lord. Psalm 93.1. The Lord's reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established firm and secure. 1 Chronicles 16.30 Tremble before him all the earth. The world is firmly established. So when Galileo in 1632 had studied and believed that the earth orbited the sun, people didn't take that very well. In fact, the church tried him for heresy and eventually put him under house arrest until he would change his views. And today we know the earth does indeed revolve around the sun. And when the scripture is saying the sun rises and the sun sets, it's, that's not what it's meaning. So if people start believing that maybe creation, as long as they don't move what we learn from the creation story, what it teaches us about who God is and who he has created us to be, there's a lot of room for how you want to live that out. And for those of you that are intrigued, good, we're going to go a little deeper with that once we get to January. When it comes to like Sodom and Gomorrah, in our day and age, you mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah and everyone instantly thinks about homosexuality. That was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. But if you actually read Isaiah chapter 1, where God compares his people, Israel, to the nations of Sodom and Gomorrah, he doesn't mention sexual immorality at all. What he mentions is a people who are not caring for one another. They're not giving fairness to their workers. They're not taking care of the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. That they're greedy, that they're accepting bribes, that they're perverting justice. Does that mean that homosexuality is not a sin? No, that's not what that means. There is one reference in the New Testament that references the Im immoral sexual behavior of Sodom and Gomorrah. So when we start to talk about the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, we're not trying to, to move the, the, the lines about homosexuality or downplay the sin of homosexuality, but what we are trying to help us understand is God cares about how we treat other people. So much so that an entire city became so wicked because of how they treated one another. And honestly, once you just start taking the gloves off and you just start living greed and you don't treat people fairly, all kinds of sins come from that. Read Romans chapter 1. When you start being disobedient to God, there's this cycle and this, it just gets worse and worse. It's a snowball effect. But yet we've associated Sodom so much so that there's a word sodomy that we get from it, but we've disassociated it from everything that it means. It's important. When we come to Psalm 23, look at this. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Oh, praise the Lord. I received that today. I don't lack anything. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. What do you think about when you see green pastures or you hear that word green pastures? What expectations do you have about this Lord who is your shepherd that's going to give you everything you need? If you're watching online, we don't have the rights to show this video online, but I want to show a short video clip. I want you to watch this. I want you to see the green pastures as they really are. As part of a shepherd lesson, I did want to look at one thing in the wilderness that will maybe surprise you a bit. Believe it or not, this is called wilderness, midbar, but it's also called green pastures. Now, when you take a Westerner here the first time and you look at this, you find people say, well, I don't know that I can go there because the Psalm 23, the Lord leads me into green pastures has been pictured as belly deep alfalfa. Well, you haven't seen any belly deep alfalfa. And from biblical time to today, it's rare to see a flock in the farm country. There isn't a lot of farm country in this culture. And so farmers kept the shepherds out as much as they could. Maybe they would come in a little bit after the harvest to glean what was left, but you don't want sheep where you can farm. This is the land of the shepherd. Right on the hillside across from us, you can see those grazing trails cut there by sheep maybe as long ago as Abraham's time. They're spaced so that an animal on one path and an animal on another can reach right to the middle between them. That determines the distance, so you can graze an entire hillside. And the shepherds lead their sheep across that hillside slowly, grazing what's there. Now you look at it from here and you say, what's there? In fact, I remember my first impression. I woke up one morning, I was sleeping out in the wilderness, and I remember waking up, watching a flock of sheep on a hillside like this, and my, re my feeling was, what are those rock-eating sheep? I mean, what do they eat? How can you call this green pastures? Well, the answer is, there's a small amount of moisture present here. They get a little bit of rain every year, not much, but a little. Second, there is humidity in the air, especially in the evening breeze, like right now, you can feel it. Coming from the west off the Mediterranean, there's moisture in the air. That moisture, combination of the rain and the humidity, condenses or drips along the edge of these rocks here. And if you notice, right around the rocks, almost always next to the rocks, you get little tufts of green. Get one a moment. That's what we refer to as the green pastures. So the shepherd looks for a hillside. That's exactly what she was doing. Look at that flock across from us there. Just stunning. Those two shepherd girls have found a hillside that either was exposed to the wind or had that small amount of rain. And they move that flock across the hillside and it's one mouthful here, walk a step or two, another mouthful, another mouthful, another mouthful. Now that changes the green pasture image a little bit, besides the picture changing radically. Green pastures are not everything you need for the rest of your life. If you make that belly deep alfalfa, then what God is saying, if you follow me, I'm going to plunk you down and you'll never have to move an inch the rest of your life. Just reach out and grab it. Tell me that your life with God has been like that. Worry, said one rabbi, is dealing with tomorrow's problems on today's pasture. 
In the desert, you learn, the shepherd will get you what you need for right now. 10 minutes from now, you trust the shepherd. Just enough. So what's being communicated? A moment by moment, trust and reliance upon the Lord. Not everything you need for this week in this moment. If, if this worship service was everything you needed for the entire week, like that mentality sometimes is what we think. It's a, and it's not even my devotion time in the morning or in the evening. It's a moment by moment walking with the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. Shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. See, sometimes we, we take the idea that the scripture is, is simple. It's easy, it's easy enough for a child to understand. Or we take the idea when um, the apostles were speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the council, if you will, the Sanhedrin. And it says they were unschooled, ordinary men. What we do is we think, well, they were unschooled. They were like high school dropouts. They weren't very smart. But that's not necessarily what that means because in this culture, when they came back out of captivity, they started having synagogue. They built synagogues not to replace the temple, but to be a meeting place where they could study the scripture together because they went into captivity because they walked away from the scriptures. And they never wanted that to happen again. They wanted to be a people that knew the scriptures. So they started having schools where they would send their children. And at age five, from age five to nine, boys and girls would be sent to school. They would be sent to a school called the Bet Sefar. And they would learn the Torah. They would memorize the entire first five books of the Bible. They would memorize them. They would commit them to memory. So they knew them in and out. And then their, their teacher, to, to, to help whether they would be able to graduate to the next level, would test them. And he would begin quoting a scripture. And it, when he stopped, he would point to you, and you had to be able to pick up where he left off and continue quoting. With no chapters and verses. That's how well they knew the book. And then if you graduated from that, you went on to the school called the Bet Midrash from age 10 to 13, and there you would memorize the rest of the Hebrew Scripture, all of the, the, the prophets and the writings. You'd commit it to memory. And so sometimes we get mistakenly, we get confused. When Jesus quotes or when Paul quotes one Scripture verse from the Old Testament, he is not quoting a Scripture verse. He is quoting a passage. Because those people understand when you pull in one verse of Scripture, you're actually referring back to everything that passage talked about. And they were so committed to the Scripture that they knew what they were talking about. They knew what the rest of that passage around it was, even if they didn't make the cut to the next school. Because if you made the cut to what was called the Bet Talmud, at age 13, you would be called to follow a rabbi where you would learn more and more how to interpret the Scriptures so that you didn't just know them, but you also knew how to interpret and you would be able to teach others. One percent would graduate to that. So you understand when Jesus comes along and says to some fishermen who probably went to memorize the Torah, who many of them probably even memorized the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures, and he says, guess what? I'm calling you to follow me. You understand why they dropped their nets and said, we're in. We're the top 1%. And you understand why their parents wouldn't have been like, where are you going? Why'd you drop the nets? This is everybody's dream 
to follow a rabbi. These people knew the book. We don't know our book. Not that well. When we cherry pick a verse, we don't know what the rest of the context is. We just pull it out because we like what that one verse says. I want to challenge you. Let's do better. Let's dig in. And you don't have to wait till January. You could use the YouVersion Bible app. You can use the BibleProject.com. You can use the resources that I've already talked to you about through the book of Revelation and at other times. And you can actually start studying the book now. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Look at this verse, last verse today. Make every effort to present yourself before God as a proven worker who does not need to be ashamed, teaching the message of truth accurately or accurately dividing or interpreting the word of truth. In our day and age, I don't think we know the Bible well enough to accurately interpret it. We know a lot. I don't say, I'm not saying we don't know anything. But the mistakes that we're making, and sometimes the way the church is actually turning people off to the gospel, comes from just a, a lack of understanding. Because we would rather spend, you know, 10 or 15 minutes just reading it devotionally, and then get onto our phones and either play games or scroll social media or watch TV or, you know, binge watch some television shows. But, you know, spend 45 minutes or an hour, like, studying the book? Eh, who has time for that? I hope we do. And I hope we will start doing that. Using some of the, the many tools we have at our disposal today to actually study the Scripture in its context and to know it well. Yeah. So that we don't misinterpret it. So keep it in mind. The Bible is a library, not a book. The Bible is written for us, not to us. Never read a Bible verse. And all of the Bible points to Jesus. So, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this collection of books that we have, some of which Jesus himself had when he walked on this earth, the Hebrew scriptures that many of us dismiss, and yet that he said himself that all of them point to him. Holy Spirit, help us to be diligent in our study of the word. Help us not to be lazy thinkers. Help us not to be people that spend more time pursuing the things of this world than we do the words of life. Help us to be a people that dig in, to know the book, to know how it points to you, to know the, what you're trying to communicate to us about who you are and what you're doing in our world today. Help us to make the right applications for our lives. Holy Spirit, thank you for the ability to pick it up and read it devotionally and still have it speak to us to be able to have your Holy Spirit help us to apply parts of it to our lives, even with just a surface reading. But help us not to stop there. Help us to be willing to dig deep. Help us to be willing to find the things that you've hidden for us in your word, to make sure that we're applying all of it to our lives. Not just the parts that make us feel good, but the parts that may be cut away at our flesh and actually produce eternal fruit in our lives. So Holy Spirit, over these next few months, as we study a little bit deeper what it means to be students of your word, help us to be willing to put in the time that we need 
to become lifelong learners of your word and its truth. Bring across our path study tools, things that we can use to help us in our quest to dig deeper into what your word is saying to us today. Thank you for the things that you've done in our lives over these moments today. Things that maybe we're already aware of and things that we're not aware of yet, but we know that you've worked. Holy Spirit, I pray your peace, your protection, your hope over each and every one that's here today. As we live out this week ahead, again, I ask that you'd help us to overflow with hope by the power of your spirit. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I hope I've whet your appetite a little bit for what's coming later on. If you're looking for resources, and maybe you don't remember some of the resources that I put out there during the Revelation series, please just connect with me this week. I'd love to point you in those directions. Most all of them are free. You don't have to purchase a thing to be able to study the Bible a little bit better than we've done before. So make sure you stop by the table as you leave today. Um, Connect cards are there. Other things about our church, the JVC online auction stuff is out there as well. Uh, Offering baskets for global outreach and for tithes and offerings. And so please make sure you stop before you leave. God bless you as you go.